Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I would like to welcome you uh, to the Heritage Foundation and to our signature event of the year, the Joseph Story Distinguished Lecture. Uh, my name is John Malcolm. I'm the Vice President for the Institute for Constitutional Government and the Director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. So this lecture is held as part of our annual Preserve the Constitution series in which we highlight how the Constitution applies to current events and in conjunction with our Legal Strategy Forum, in which we invite nearly 50 CEOs and chief legal officers uh, from the country's leading uh, freedom-based public interest law firms. Many of them are here in the audience, so we welcome them too. This lecture has been named in honor of one of our country's most distinguished judicial and legal scholars, a man who, in fact, distinguished himself in many different ways. Joseph Story was involved in politics and civic activities in his native state of Massachusetts. After several years in private practice, he served in the Massachusetts State Legislature for a part of that time as the Speaker of the House and in the United States Congress. President James Madison turned to Story after his initial choice to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court, John Quincy Adams turned him down after being swiftly and unanimously confirmed, I might add. My, how times have changed. <laughs> Story was confirmed at the ripe old age of 32, making him the youngest uh, Supreme Court justice in our nation's history. And he served on the court for 33 years. He was also a scholar, even while serving as an associate justice. He was instrumental in establishing the Harvard Law School and served as its Dane Professor of Law. And of course, Story was an accomplished writer whose articles and books were praised on both sides of the Atlantic. His most famous work was, of course, his commentaries on the Constitution. Story's commentaries demonstrated his commitment to faithfully interpreting the Constitution as it was understood by those who wrote it and ratified it, a Constitution that is not living, but which is enduring. The influence of Story's commentaries continues to be felt today among the judiciary and constitutional scholars, and thank heaven for that. We are fortunate indeed tonight to have Judge Edith Jones of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals as this year's Story Lecturer. Judge Jones has had a long and distinguished judicial career, having been appointed to the bench by President Ronald Reagan in 1985. Judge Jones, who served as the chief judge of that court from 2006 to 2012, is also actively involved in giving back to her community and to the bar. She served for several years as a White House Fellows Commissioner, having been appointed by President George W. Bush. 
She has also served on the board of the Sam Houston Area Council of the Boy Scouts of America, is the current president of the Garland Walker Inn of Court, and is also on the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Judge Jones's topic for tonight is playing the judicial long game. How long is enough? Please join me in welcoming this year's Joseph Story Distinguished Lecturer, Judge Edith Jones. applaud now. You don't have to applaud later. Appreciate it. I want to give heartfelt thanks to uh, many friends responsible for my being here this evening. I could give my whole speech on my heartfelt thanks. Uh, it's an on honor to follow in the path of distinguished jurists, including Judge Bork and uh, now Justice Kavanaugh. I owe the greatest debt to my long-suffering husband, Woody Jones, who sadly is not here with us tonight and great debts as well to my husband, husband, my son, and daughter-in-law, and granddaughters. And by the way, Woody is the true intellectual of our family, as all the former clerks here are well aware. But I'm also greatly indebted to teachers, because after all, uh, what is the most important job we can all fulfill but teaching those who are to come after us? And those teachers in chronological order include Charles Allen Wright, James McClellan, Gary McDowell, who is here this evening, Stephen Presser, Ralph Rossum, Frank Buckley, who was supposed to be here, I can't see him right now, Raul Berger, Walter Burns, Philip Hamburger, Hadley Arcus, and Antonine Scalia. I didn't know Judge Bork, but his book on antitrust law was a great influence in my early legal career. Although I could name many more, I will stop here with a global thanks to over 100 law clerks who are my friends and for who, with my judicial assistant of ten, over 10 years, Pam Wood. And finally, is, is General Meese here? He's uh, on a cruise in Panama. All right, well, good for him. <laughs> well, as you know, uh, he is responsible for this uh, activity at the Heritage Foundation and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom last week. Without his vision, leadership, and persistence, I would surely not be here, nor in all probability would the originalist revolution have occurred. My remarks are de uh, directed to the legacy of that revolution. Next May, I celebrate my 35th anniversary on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. This plus advancing age have inspired contemplation about what, whether I, this is all the product of a misspent youth and what <laughs> the judiciary has accomplished during my tenure. One can contemplate from many perspectives, but as an avowed, even notorious judicial conservative, uh, my retrospective turned to the aspirations that the president and General Meese had for their judicial appointments. To make it quite clear at the outset, aspirations are not to be confused with outcomes. We were not nominated with an agenda to obtain particular results in particular types of cases. Instead, General Mises and the President's aspirations, if I may presume to suggest, are a return to textualism 
and its tools and basic legal reasoning, and of faithfully upholding the original meaning of the Constitution. But as President Reagan said, there are simple answers, but there are no easy answers. A few prevailing opinions I've written in contentious cases tucked into a significant body of dissents confirm his aphorism. It can be hard to mold aspiration to actual decision-making. Uh, tonight, I will try to assess the extent to which the aspirations of the Reagan administration are on the way to being fulfilled. An explanation for certain important decisions in recent years is that the Supreme Court is playing the long game. How long is the long game? Uh, to figure it out, it is useful to compare three previous watershed periods in American constitutional law. You are well acquainted with these periods, which include the Marshall Court, the transition to the Progressive Court, and the Warren Court. Sketching the evolution of legal reasoning and Supreme Court decisions during these periods, along with the political backdrop, facilitate comparing them with my, the Supreme Court during my tenure. And I venture to suggest what lessons those previous eras have for judicial originalists. The Marshall Court, 1801 to 1836, and Justice Story's contribution. As uh, John said, Justice Marshall was appointed in December 1801. He accepted the nomination by default after John Jay declined, decla declaring the Supreme Court not a significant body. Chief Justice Marshall showed the short-sightedness of Jay's view. Although today we consider Marshall's decisions cloaked with inevitability, it is easy to forget that he and his court faced strong political headwinds. At the time of his appointment, Mar Marshall's five colleagues on the Supreme Court were all Federalists. Within six years, however, death, resignations, and a bill expanding the size of the court had allowed President Jefferson to appoint four Republican justices placing Marshall nominally in the minority, and so it would remain for the duration of his career. Republicans mistrusted the federal judiciary owing to the anti-federalist fear of the overweening judicial power, the court's vigorous enforcement of the Sedition Act, and unresolved constitutional conflicts over the respective spheres of federal and state power. After his inauguration, Jefferson expressed in a private letter, as he often expressed things in private letters, his hope that Congress would lop off the parasitical plant engrafted at the last session. And so the Republicans accommodatingly passed the Judiciary Act of 1802, which eliminated the Federalist-appointed midnight judges' positions. In an additional petty blow, Congress canceled the Supreme Court's summer session, thus delaying any challenge to that controversial law until at least February 1803. Privately, Marshall and his colleagues feared that for Congress to eliminate judgeships was an affront to Article III's life tenure protection. But the challenge to the 1802 Judiciary Act eventually failed on procedural grounds. Not so the challenge to a provision of the 1789 Judiciary Act, which it, Marbury v. Madison um, uh, 
dis discovered in uh, 1803. Chief Justice Marshall's unanimous opinion presaged a unified judicial approach that would be the norm for years to come. The courts of pa power of judicial review had been foreseen in documents like Federalist 78, but Marbury explained clearly why the Supreme Court had the duty to declare void acts of law that derogate from or clash with the fundamental law. And this result follows inexorably from the fact that the Constitution is the permanent expression of the government structure chosen by the people. Marbury initiated a, si a series of decisions that filled in details integral to preserving the constitutional and federalist structure. As my friend Mike Yulman, God rest his soul, summarized, quote, delineating the constitutional topography of federalism was only one of Marshall's signal accomplishments. The achievement of that goal necessarily entailed careful explication of the Commerce Clause, the Contracts Clause, the Supremacy Clause, and the constitutional bargain that created the Bill of Rights. You all know these cases well. Throughout his tenure, Justice Marshall enjoyed unwavering support and admiration from Justice Joseph Story. Story contributed his incomparable intellect an encyclopedic mastery of law to further defend the principles adopted by the Marshall Court. Story's commentaries on the Constitution is dedicated to Marshall. The work was intentionally designed to counteract the ascendance of the compact theory and the nullification movement. Story's preface to the, Constitution, to the commentaries contains this memorable, memorable passage, quote, the reader must not expect to find in these pages any novel views and any novel constructions of the Constitution. I have not the ambition to be the author of any new plan of interpreting the theory of the Constitution or of enlarging or narrowing its powers by ingenious subtleties and learned doubts. Upon subjects of government, it has always appeared to me that metaphysical refinements are out of place. A constitution of government is addressed to the common sense of the people and never was designed for trials of logical skill or visionary speculation. During the era of the Marshall Court, the nation was beset by political turmoil, war, and philosophical divisions. Marshall and Jefferson were enemies. The Jeffers Jeffersonians had attempted to impeach and remove Justice Chase. Marshall thwarted Aaron Burr's prosecution for treason despite Jefferson's public advocacy to convict. Marshall's Federalist policy became extinct during the War of 1812 for its opposition. Marshall himself remained a minority among overwhelmingly Republican fellow Virginians, some of them his implacable opponents. So reviled were several of the court's decisions as Senator Richard Johnson of Kentucky denounced the court on the floor of the Senate in 1822 and proposed a series of constitutional amendments that would have restricted court jurisdiction made federal judges removable by votes of Congress, appointed the Senate, the court of last resort over state court decisions, and expanded the court to 10 justices. 
finally, President Andrew Jackson's tenure brought new judges and judicial philosophy antithetical to those of Marshall and Story. Both men, toward the end of their careers, believed they might have failed and the union was doomed. Much is made about scholars about Marshall's cleverness, his technique of making broad statements of law in cases otherwise narrowly decided. I would emphasize a different point. Marshall acted on the courage of conviction. He served in combat in the Revolutionary War and spent the winter at Valley Forge. He had been a witness to the original meeting of the Constitution as a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He idolized Washington. He knew the importance of persistence, and he was an incomparable <laughs> diplomat. His principles did not waver. They were grounded in the Constitution and objective legal standards. As Justice Story says, Marshall's maturer years were devoted to the task of unfolding the constitutional, Constitution's powers and illustrating its principles. Whether the opinions satisfy contemporary legal technicians' post hoc evaluation trivializes the Marshall Court's systematic application of textualism and originalism. In the end, the Marshall Court's legacy essentially endured and prevailed throughout the 19th century and speaks to us today. The Marshall Court designed the structure most harmonious with the original meaning of the Constitution and showed how to interpret it. Now I move to the progressive era, 1905 to 40. The period from 1905 when Lochner issued until about 1940 is another era of momentous change for the court. Politically, the progressive movement was well underway. Intellectually, progressivism had been developing for a couple of decades. The progressive movement was rooted in historicism, Darwinism, and German theories about the organic nature of the state, with a capital S. These ideas were attacking the Enlightenment rationalism and religion as foundations of American government. In law, the progressives euphemistically called their movements realism or sociological jurisprudence. Progressives in the legal academy sought to abandon ossified doctrinal notions that they claimed were getting in the way of social progress. In regard to the Constitution, progressives adopted Professor Woodward Wilson's academic writings, which advocated abandoning as outmoded the limitations on government engrafted in the Constitution. Wilson wrote that all that progressives ask or desire is permission in an era when development, evolution is the scientific word, to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle. Professor Edward Corwin preached the doctrine of the living Constitution to students and judges. Writing in 1925, he said that, for many practical purposes, the Constitution is the judicial version of it, constitutional law. Just a few of the eminent progressives included scholars and judges like Jerome Frank, Roscoe Pound, Learned Hand, and Felix Frankfurter. 
Clever and opinionated, they exerted immense influence on fu future generations of lawyers and judges, and their writings were often designed to appeal to a wide audience. But progressivism took a while to achieve dominance in the Supreme Court. Justices Holmes and Brandeis were in the minority throughout the 1920s and became famous for pithy dissents. The so-called conservative court, however, saw itself as representing the traditional martial court approach. Contrary to the progressive view, Justice Sutherland wrote that constitutional questions are not settled by even a consensus of public opinion, for it is the peculiar value of a written constitution that it places in unchanging form limitations upon legislative action and thus gives a permanence and stability to popular government, which otherwise would be lacking. Uh, no matter how one uh, assesses uh, this conservative court's interpretation of liberty of contract, the same conservative court had interpreted the due process clause of the 14th Amendment as early as 1908 to incorporate some provisions of the Bill of Rights holding that those rights are of such a nature that they are included in the conception of due process of law. The conservative court issued the Meyer and Pierce decisions and grounded them in liberty under the due process of law in two senses, liberty of teachers to pursue the profession of language teaching and the business of private schooling, and liberty for parents to control their children's education. And the conservative court that decided Schenck announced in the Gitlow case only a few years later that freedom of speech and of the press are among fundamental personal rights and liberties protected by the due process clause. I can't resist mentioning here that the progressive attitude toward the due process clause was much different and in uh, uh, editorials penned for the New Republic, both Frankfurter and Learned Hand had written pieces in favor of abolishing the 14th Amendment due process. But aside from that, many in the legal establishment understood the challenge posed by progressivism to constitutionalism and traditional legal reasoning. Campaigning for Warren Harding in 1920, William Howard Taft wrote, there is no greater domestic issue in this election than the maintenance of the Supreme Court as the bulwark to enforce the guarantee that no man shall be deprived of his property without due process of the law. He added that the sociological school of constitutional jurisprudence represented by Justice Brandeis threatened to greatly impair our fundamental law. Two successive ABA presidents lamented the growth of government power and the failure of courts to limit such growth. Professor, Professor, President Calvin Coolidge supported some progressive reforms and regulation that he thought would protect individual liberty. But in regard to the law, he said, men do not make laws, they do but discover them. Laws must be justified by something other than the will of the majority. By the end of the 1930s, as we all know, progressives control the court. Where court packing had failed, appointees of Presidents Hoover and Roosevelt were devoted New Dealers. 
the Constitution began to be interpreted as only w Woodrow Wilson could have dreamed. The limitations uh, intended by the Contracts Clause were neutered. Vast new federal economic regulation was largely rubber-stamped as the reach of the Commerce Clause became almost unlimited. The delegation doctrine was interred. Lochner era precedents protecting liberty of contract under the Due Process Clause were rapidly repudiated. The coup de grace was administered by Justice Stone in footnote four of the 1938 Caroline Products decision. Here the court foreswore serious judicial scrutiny of laws affecting economic interests while signaling a greater concern with constitutional alleged invasions of interest protected by the Bill of Rights through the 14th Amendment and uh, forecast there would be a more searching judicial inquiry of governmental actions affecting discrete and insular minorities. This era, era approximately 1905 to 40, experienced political crisis and scandals. Wars, I can't even uh, enumerate all of the problems they faced. Labor strife, fears of monopolistic big business, challenges from immigration, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the, the civil rights and women's suffrage movements, prohibition, anarchists, Marxists, and fascists. As noted, the progressive constitutional challenge was attacked politically and by the organized bar. But the Great Depression finally overwhelmed supporters of limited government and traditional constitutionalism. An epitaph for constitutional limits was written by Justice Sutherland in a 1937 dissent. To say that the words of the Constitution mean today what they did not mean when written, that is, that they do not apply to a situation now to which they would have applied then, is to rob that instrument of the essential element which continues it in force as the people have made it until they and not their official agents made it otherwise. The progressives persisted, their judicial opinions rarely temporized. They made their case in academia, in the courts, and in the public square, and the changes the progressive Supreme Court effected in our constitutional structure uh, have gone largely unchallenged for half a century. Next is the, the Warren-Brennan Court, 1953 to 73. Watershed areas can develop in far less than three decades. Whereas the progressive court practiced judicial self-restraint, the court led by Earl Warren, uh, and then deeply influenced by William Brennan, abandoned restraint, aggrandizing the federal judiciary at the expense of federalism and self-government. The court's steady rush of decisions affected nearly every corner of American life. Time permits only a partial enumeration of the areas affected by the new constitutional law. Consider, the court constitutionalized over two dozen aspects of criminal procedure, prescribed Miranda warnings in the exclusionary rule with no textual constitutional support, and transformed federal collateral review of state court convictions into an unwieldy and unpredictable weapon against finality. The court banned Bible reading in public schools, 
with its invocation of the extra-constitutional metaphor, the wall of separation, and the creation of taxpayer standing, the court unleashed a flood of Establishment Clause litigation. But at the same time, the court placed the imperatives of free exercise through its novel constitutional interpretations in conflict with the Establishment Clause. The court enlarged the uh, free speech clause under a protection of free expression and unbridled pornography and undid centuries of libel and defamation law. The court embroiled federal courts in the judicial thicket of legislative redistricting. It approved forced busing of school children in districts throughout the country, along with managerial oversight of these schools by federal courts. The court declared that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. The court reformulated the Civil Rights Act of 1871 to allow federal damage cases over the constitutionality of actions by individual local and state officers. And of course, the court endorsed substantive due process cloaked as the right to privacy in Griswold, followed only shortly after Chief Judge Justice Warren's uh, retirement by Eisenstadt and the crowning of the era Roe v. Wade. What distinguished this era was its freewheeling abandonment of recent precedents in favor of the justices' hubristic assertions of the power to apply vague generalities in the Bill of Rights to satisfy today's needs. The court embraced penumbras and emanations from the Constitution rather than hewing to the permanent expression of that document in its words and structure and history. The court's continual excess turned justices Frankfurter and Black into strict constructionists as their dissents sought to impose minimal fixed limits on the increasing scope of judicial activism. Outside the courts, other jurists and scholars, all schooled in the progressive tradition, began to criticize the court's plain overreach. Professor Wexler was one of the first, seeking neutral principles for constitutional adjudication. Even before the full flowering of Warren Court in, uh, innovations, Learned Hand's sustained critique of the court summed up, for myself, it would be most irksome to be re uh, ruled by a bevy of platonic guardians, even if I knew how to choose them, which I most assuredly do not. Professor Alexander Bickle delivered some of the most insightful criticisms of the court's legislative-like agenda. Along the way, he described law professors as uh, who easily found flaws in the court's reasoning, its use and abuse of history, and its failure to answer unavoidable questions about the consequences of decisions. However, as he explains, many either welcomed the court's results or professed detachment from them. This area was punctuated domestically by the civil rights movement. The intention behind the court's integration decisions cannot be faulted, uh, despite their legal flaws. But far more than in other watershed eras, 
the court's own decisions inspired special public hostility. Those included banning school prayer, promoting forced school busing, and crafting criminal procedural rights that were associated with a significant rise in crime. Political candidates like Richard Nixon capitalized on cracking down on crime and appointing strict constructionists to the court. But the Warren court did not flinch in the face of public, political, or professional criticism. Roe v. Wade, as I said, was the jurisprudential culmination of the court's ad hoc, result-oriented process. Right, wrong, or egregiously in conflict with the Constitution as framed, the precedents created in only 20 years have remained largely intact. In each of these noted eras, uh, there was a long game in which a distinctive constitutional approach matured. So what can we conclude about the Supreme Court's activity in the most recent 35-year period? In candor, I rate this as a period of indecision, vacillation, and uncertainty about the principles governing the court's awesome power. To be sure, originalist reasoning has generated significant achievements. Justice Rehnquist, no longer a solo voice for federalism, authored decisions that began to cabin excesses in federal habeas law, predating the EDPA. Uh, establishment clause barriers to neutral secular aid to students in private schools were gradually removed. Some, albeit small limits, were placed on the Federal Commerce Clause power, and the federal government was denied the power to commandeer the states in service of its functions. By fits and starts, some religious liberty claims received the court's endorsement and the possibility of interminable litigation over public monuments with religious connotations has been removed. That the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep arms was affirmed and then uh, was incorporated against the states. And the court strengthened the 14th Amendment takings clause in overruling the Williamson County, uh, County exhaustion principle. Uh, but offsetting such decisions are others that no, no originalist, in my view, can endorse. The courts uh, approved affirmative action in college admissions and disparate impact claims under the Fair Housing Act. As a whole, the court's establishment clause jurisprudence remains nearly impossible to follow. Death penalty case law has meandered far from the Eighth Amendment's text, severely burdening capital litigation and leaving victims' families in decades-long limbo. The court rejected separation of powers challenges to the US, U.S. Sentencing Commission and a challenge to the independent counsel law that infringed the president's executive authority. One dramatic example of the court's internal division appeared in Booker v. United States, where one bare majority held that mandatory U.S. sentencing guidelines violate the Sixth Amendment, while another bare majority in the same case saved the guidelines by blatantly refashioning the statute's appellate review standard. Another such example is the split decision upholding the Affordable Care Act. Uh, 
And of course, the court reframed Roe v. Wade and has issued mixed messages since then about regulating abortion facilities and practices. No justice defends the original Roe decision as it was written, but Roe stands, and the court used its radical libertarianism to justify both Lawrence and Obergefell. As of 1997, I had thought Glucksburg would cabin substantive due process rights to those deeply rooted in our history and traditions. I was wrong. Obergefell's majority declared that history and traditions no longer set outer boundaries on the identification and protection of constitutional rights the court uh, deems fundamental. Moreover, such newly discovered rights may demand the court's intervention, quote, notwithstanding the more general value of democratic decision-making, close quote. Obergefell's right of dignity remains, to paraphrase Justice Jackson, a loaded weapon lying around awaiting its next use. The absence of consensus in the court's approach to constitutional adjudication got to the point where one astute litigator said it had become necessary to appeal to nine separate decision makers when writing briefs to the court. It has often been frustrating to sit as a lower court judge throughout this period, not being sure of the baseline test for constitutional cases. Two examples are illustrative. The Fifth Circuit went on banc twice to decide whether after Lopez, Hobbs Act prosecutions for robbery of small local businesses had such an insubstantial connection with interstate commerce as to be outside the Federal Commerce Clause power. The court split eight to seven in each case. Another en banc decision in our circuit yielded multiple opinions on the question whether an elementary school teacher violated students' free exercise rights by forbidding the student to give out Christmas candy canes with a tag reading, Jesus is the reason for the season. These should not have been difficult cases, but the court's indecisive uh, series of holdings rendered them debatable. Yet our intellectual discomfort is as nothing compared with the public's inability to comprehend the law and appreciate constitutional boundaries. Constitutional indeterminacy ultimately puts at risk the rule of law and very palpably undercuts the notion that ours is a government of laws, not men. Nevertheless, despite the, the disappointments that I have seen, to despair would be premature. Ideas have consequences. And after all, the return to originalism and textualism announced and so persistently supported by General Meese and many others in this room, challenged nearly a century of misguided interpretive theories. The seat of final constitutional interpretation, of course, lies with the Supreme Court, and there Justices Scalia's, Scalia and Thomas have proven the feasibility and persuasiveness of originalism in the modern day. Of incalculable importance, is Justice Scalia's co-authored book, Reading Law, for its definitive explanation of the canons of textual construction. 
The canons long derided in the legal academy do indeed furnish objective criteria for resolving legal disputes, whether contractual or statutory or even constitutional. Reading law has become a ubiquitous judicial resource. Would that the waves had parted in the 1980s debate uh, when it over originalism at the beginning. Formidable uh, opposition arose immediately and is unabated. Politicians recognized the threat originalism poses to obtaining their preferred results on the cheap, outside the conflict and compromises required in the political process. Interest groups worked overtime to fundraise and manufacture controversy out of similar fears. The Supreme Court confirmation process has become a blood sport. Overt threats to the court's membership and composition are being made. Opponents have cleverly used slogans like the living constitution and the wall of separation, which are glibly attractive but deeply misleading. Nevertheless, in my estimation, opponents of originalism have relinquished the intellectual high ground. Constitutional scholarship after the Warren Court has become a Tower of Babel. Frankfurter's progressive democratic realism, which accommodated the political branches and sought neutral principles, was interred by the Warren Court itself. Traditional scholars confronted with Warren Court decisions developed numerous and nu nuanced theories on subjects like tiers of scrutiny, suspect classes, and speech classifications. Unfortunately, real life, as presented in re legal cases, rarely conforms to theories, and the court's decisions have reflected this deficiency. More ambitious scholars, emulating the court's activism, fabricated critical legal studies, feminist jurisprudence, environmental justice, and postmodern theories that have been useful for awarding tenure, but had little influence outside academia. As Lino Gralia consistently maintained, these scholars are not following the Constitution, but making it up as they go. The goal of other scholars or commentators has been to dismiss originalist decisions as politically motivated, while often refusing to engage them substantively. A telling indicator of originalism's importance, however, is found in Justice Kagan's rhetoric. Dissenting in Rucho v. Common Cause, where the court held that uh, legislative gerrymandering amounts to non-justiciable political questions, she quoted the Declaration of Independence, Madison and the Federalist Papers, and the Constitution at the beginning, and Marbury v. Madison at the end of her dissent. Of course, one may question how apt those references were, but I leave that to the reader. In praising Justice Scalia, she has declared, we are all textualists now. Compared to the watershed eras, the long game for a return to originalism and textualism is becoming very long, and many innings remain. Those er but those eras hold several important lessons for the next phase of the long game. And I'm very proud to say that many of my former law clerks are active uh, players in that game. First of all, personnel is critical. 
Judge Bork concluded the first story lecture with a hope that for the appointment of new original judges as a necessary, if not sufficient, prerequisite for pre preserving a Republican form of government. What was true for the progressive and Warren courts remains true today. And we are blessed that the president and a majority of the US Senate have shared that understanding for the Supreme Court and most importantly, lower courts. Other lessons I glean from the watershed eras may be denoted by three terms, clarity, persistence, and fortitude. Clarity, the opinions that characterize these eras are clear about their principles, whether they defended the Marshallian constitutional structure or were adapting its rigid constraints in the progressive era, or simply using the vague generalities of the Bill of Rights as a frame for judicial embroidery. Going forward, originalists must continue to speak with clarity about why the Constitution's framework of government is necessary to preserve liberty and why judges may not alter it. Precedent is important, in fact, overriding for us on the lower courts. But precedents can be abrogated, as they were by the Progressive and Warren courts. Recently in Nick, the, the court found compelling originalist arguments uh, met with prudence to, to overrule Williamson. Clarity is not served by decisions that nod to originalist reasoning and then veer into judgments based on newly mitted, seemingly ad hoc grounds. Such temporizing undercuts originalism, makes decisions appear pragmatic and not principled. And with caution, and without elaborating on it here, I suggest that clarity may be deserved by multiple opinions, even when they reflect, in certain cases, even when they reflect originalist principles. Persistence. This quality is obvious uh, and derivative from the watershed eras. With few aberrations, the Marshall Court, the progressive judges, and the Warren Court majority stuck to their guns, if I may be forgiven for using weapons as an analogy. <laughs> Justice Marshall's and Story persisted in their positions even after they believed they were on the losing side. Justice Scalia persisted until his insistence on textualism has nearly overcome the, the use of legislative history and the discretion-loaded competing theories of textual interpretation. Even that achievement, however, requires persistent reinforcement. Justice Kagan, writing for the majority in the Gundy case, applied Scalia's reading law book in her statutory exegesis. But she pivoted into legislative history with a quip, quote, Justice Scalia's dissent thought that legislative history was gilding the lily. He had a point, but we can't resist. Proposivist interpretive theories are dormant not yet done for. Justice Thomas's career of almost 30 years on the Supreme Court has de demonstrated persistence at its finest. Going forward, my hope is that the court that rendered decisions supporting religious liberty 
defending the constitutional freedom to associate or not according to one's political beliefs, and protecting the individual right to keep arms will persist. And persistence, in my view, strongly suggests the court should hear more cases to cement these originalist principles and, frankly, prevent lower courts from underruling them. The court has greater resources than ever before and should be fully capable of increasing its annual workload. In the early 70s, for instance, with only two law clerks each and working on typewriters, the court was deciding well over 100 cases per term. In this litigious era, unlike those in preceding watershed eras, persistence is required more than ever to maintain uniform federal and constitutional law. Fortitude. Fortitude means strength of mind that enables a person to encounter danger or bear adversity with courage. Its synonyms include backbone and grit. The past 35 years have not been the first era in which fortitude has been essential in the face of pressure against Article III judges. The careers of Justices Marshall and Story, Frankfurter, and the judges of the Fifth Circuit who carried out the Warren Court's decisions to integrate the South exemplify fortitude. Surely those who adhere to constitutional originalism are obliged to have strength of mind when facing its inevitable critics and even the defamation they will encounter. For instance, Chief Justice Roberts stated in the Seattle School's opinion that, quote, the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Writing further opinions to undergird this originalist conclusion will require fortitude. I could name many other such statements that will require fortitude to embody in, federal, in majority, future majority court opinions, subjects of voting rights, the nature of the administrative state, and religious liberty come readily to mind. The principles of, of originalism are in place. Personnel have joined the Article III courts at all levels who are brilliant and have claimed to be originalists. What remains in this long game is to demonstrate clarity, persistence, and fortitude. I conclude with two quotations. First, from Justice Story. He taught that the Constitution should have a fixed, uniform, permanent construction. It should be not dependent on the passion or parties of particular times, but the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And now I quote Gary McDowell in his book, The Language of Law and the Foundations of American Constitution. He said, time has shown that originalism as a theory of constitutional interpretation remains very much alive. Bork was defeated, but his central idea was not. That theory of interpretation and its implicit belief in restrained judging continues to guide those who believe that the inherent arbitrariness of government by judiciary is not the same thing as the rule of law. God bless the United States and these honorable courts.
Thank you. As we commenced, I'm Dr. Jan Hamilton from Aspen, Colorado. Uh, as we began this Supreme Court year, the cases that were chosen for the first week regard sex. So as we look at conversion therapy uh, to mandate that someone be cured of being gay, or if we look at uh, losing a job because that person is gay, do you see the Constitution turning a page in American history? I foreswore interpreting the Constitution in 1992 when I did not accurately predict whether, whether it would allow a graduation prayer in junior high, and therefore I have made no predictions since then. <laughs> Sorry. I'm okay. Uh, Judge, we have a few uh, things for you. You don't have to, we will send them to your chambers, so you don't uh -oh. have to transport them back with you. We have a complete set of stories, commentaries oh. uh, for you, and uh, you should feel free to pass these among your colleagues who might need them. <laughs> <laughs> we also have uh, an abbreviated version, the Cliff Notes version, if you will, <laughs> of, uh, of stories, commentaries with the, uh, with the preface by our own uh, Attorney General, Ed Meese. Oh. And then, most importantly, and certainly incredibly well-deserved, our uh, Defender of the Constitution Award. Oh. This is going to book a bookend Joan of Arc, which some other uh, law clerks <laughs> gave me. That's terrific. Thank you all for coming, and now let's join in, in the foyer for a reception.